Ladies and gentlemen of Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast, where normally we like to begin by talking about the play on the pitch and maybe some lighthearted news stories in the soccer world. But today we have to start with a pretty distressing story coming out of Championship Club Wigan. I think most casual soccer fans will know them from their 2013 FA Cup victory over Manchester City. Uh, and being managed by former Everton coach Roberto Martinez, now the current Belgian coach. And there's been a lot of wild stories. Basically, the club has had a 12-point points deduction being implemented on them by the FA, or the English football, the governing body of the English football pyramid. And their club has suddenly gone into administration, despite being in a pretty safe place financially, following the sale, the recent sale of the championship club. Nathan, do you want to take us through the goings-on at Wigan and just what is making this such a crazy, outlandish story from a business soccer perspective? So Wigan have always been a pretty decently uh, well-run club, not necessarily um, producing Premier League quality play on the pitch, but they certainly were an established championship side. They made a couple of great cup runs, it seemed like. Every other year, they would be in the in the uh, BFA Cup semifinals. In 2018, the club was sold by former owner Dave Whelan to a Hong Kong-based corporation uh, that specialized in gambling. The club then changed hands a couple of times between different Chinese owners who were all basically the same person um, via shell companies in the Cayman Islands. Now, if that sounds a little suspicious, it's common practice for these sort of corporations to have part or full stakes uh, in clubs. But where it gets dodgier is the fact that it was purchased with basically a loan from itself uh, with an 8% interest rate, which is uh, pretty steep. Uh, That resulted in payments of uh, £100,000 a week. And obviously, the FA was not... uh, Hugely thrilled with this, but they approved it anyways. And then this year, uh, the club switched hands again to another uh, another Chinese uh, shareholder. However, a week after that, Chinese lawyers contacted administrators to seize control of the club, placing Wigan into administration. All of this seems pretty confusing. Yeah, and when Nathan says well run, coming into this period of being sold once again or being the ownership of the club being transferred once again, they only had nine million pounds of debt, which is incredibly, incredibly good for a club in the championship. And they own their stadium and they own their trading ground, which is a lot more than other teams in that division can say. So it's not like they're they're fielding youth players or they're, you know, their monetization is in a bad way financially. They they are, as Nathan says, being run very or were being run up until this this scandal broke very very well. Meanwhile, Wigan on the pitch this season were not in the uh, relegation zone, but certainly not 
uh, challenging for promotion, sort of languishing in the lower mid-table area, when all of a sudden they get put into administration, which carries with it an FA uh, fine of being docked 12 points. All of a sudden, Wigan have gone from being an established championship team to possibly facing relegation. Now, this is pretty puzzling, but remember how their former owners were a gambling company or a company that was run by a gambling company? Well, in a video of the EFL's president, Richard Perry, he states that he heard a rumor that there is a massive bet placed on Wigan being relegated, and the bet was placed in the Philippines. It seems to me that it's far too big a coincidence that a gambling company would place the club into administration, uh, a club that wouldn't have been relegated, and putting putting them in the relegation zone by virtue of them being in administration. It seems to me that like it's entirely possible that there are some dodgy business going on that are set to make a few people a lot of money behind the scenes and totally screw over this very well-run football club. Not to mention the fact that there have already been instances of people at Wigan's ground being thrown out of matches for uh, engaging with betters in the East via telephone to let them know what events at the games are happening. So it does seem to me like gambling companies have a really strong grip on Wigan right now. And whether or not uh, Wigan are able to stay in the championship next year will be the result of a pending FA investigation. But it's certainly interesting to look at this in conjecture with La Liga's announcement this past week that they were banning any betting companies from sponsoring uh, La Liga clubs. It seems to me like this is something that is very concerning for the soccer industry as a whole. Caleb Rose, this was a team that had a very homey feel to it. Obviously, Dave Whelan, he's a prominent Englishman, and the club always seemed like the perennial underdog in a team that everyone could get behind. I think that being exemplified by their just incredible display against Manchester City in 2013, when it was perhaps the most, the greatest upset in FA Cup history, at least in recent memory. Um, they obviously have, as from an American perspective, Anthony Robinson, the American left back, currently is employed by the club and is being trotted out by them. Caleb, this is this is just disturbing. Can you imagine being a fan of Wigan right now with your club just being played with like this financially for potentially illegal gambling purposes? And, and what kind of precedent does this set for ownership going forward and, and what can be done to fix this? Oh, so let, let me bring you back to the 2010-2011 uh, Premier League season. A young Caleb Rhodes had just watched Spain win the World Cup, sort of further enlivening his passion for the sport of soccer. And so he decides to play fantasy Premier League for the first time. And after doing some research, he decides to purchase the then young Charles Nzogbia um, as his midfielder. Charles Nzogbia, who went on to score nine goals for Wigan, a star in fantasy Premier League football that year. And that's really, that that's how I remember Wigan. Um, and it's certainly Charles Nzogbia is probably tearing up hearing this story. But like literally, literally, it's just nuts. I mean... So the the guy who bought it, this guy Al Young, along with his partner, um, this guy Stanley Choi, who's a high stakes poker player, um, they claim that. So they bought the club. They started initiating the buying of the club on June fourth, 
and didn't even take control until June 24th. And then a week later on July 1st is when they put the club in administration, essentially throwing away $42 million. Um, and and the reason they said they had to do that was because of the coronavirus. But obviously that doesn't make any sense considering they literally took charge of the club during the coronavirus and after the biggest wave in England. So I, I agree with Nathan that I think that there's some shady betting stuff going on here. Um, but really what this points to um, more broadly for like the championship, and this is something that the EFL even talked about in a statement on it, is how difficult it is for these EFL teams to stay competitive without looking to outside buyers. Um, and the reason being is that the Premier League makes so much more money. And in order to compete to make it to the Premier League, you have to overpay um, wages in the second division. And so as a result, there's a pressure on clubs like Wigan, um, who fell out of the Premier League kind of before the big money, the really big money era, before this NBC sports deal, um, to look for people um, to give them money. But a lot of the time, it's not actually good money. And I, I think one thing the EFL said they need to do or encourage the Premier League to do is to try to share the wealth a little bit more. And I think that's probably the best way to prevent kind of predatory purchases of smaller clubs. In right. And and to be fair, I think there's a difference between having bad ownership like Mike Ashley and having predatory ownership who is looking to, you know, sell a club for parts or uh, exclusively profit off of it, like what happened with Bolton or uh, Portsmouth about 10 years ago. Um, but I definitely think that there need to be higher standards for the EFL when it comes to looking into who is actually owning these teams. We talked about the potential of Saudi Arabia's public investment group uh, purchasing Newcastle earlier on uh, this spring. And I think the three of us were pretty vocal in opposition to that. And I, I don't really see that much of a difference in terms of uh, uh, why, you know, a betting company shouldn't be allowed to own a club either. It's a, a blatant conflict of interest. And even if it's nominal, uh, you know, if it's being purchased through a shell company, I think the EFL just has to dig their boots in a little bit and really look out for their clubs and frankly, the fans too. Yeah, I think from a fan perspective, I can imagine this being absolutely devastating, especially considering... We don't know what's going to be happening next season with League One and League Two and sort of the bottom echelon of the football pyramid. We don't know if they're going to be restarting. We don't know what kind of financial situation they're going to be in. I imagine it's not going to be a good one. So if Wigan Athletic have to be relegated to League One, which is practically a league that I think you could say right now doesn't actually exist at this very moment, that could be disastrous. And I can imagine it being just like, these fans of Wigan who had seen such highs in 2013 being in the Premier League, winning an FA Cup against an absolute juggernaut in Manchester City at the time. Obviously, they still are, but this is like new Manchester City, new Middle Eastern oil money, Man City being brought to, or Etihad money being brought to English shores. So we've obviously seen that clubs like Hole in the championship are always at odds, who are always at odds with their owner, Asam Lam who is an Egyptian Englishman businessman who is not willing to reinvest money back in the club. And he's just kind of profiting off of uh, his situation being an owner in, in the championship and not really wanting to 
have anyone else come in. He rejected a takeover bid in 2019 for Hull City. So I think we're seeing in the championship that is easier, especially in these lower divisions where the scrutiny of the cameras of the Premier League aren't on these clubs all the time, that there is an opportunity, as Caleb was saying, for predatory ownership to come in and try and make some money off of these teams who are being deceived under the pretense that they could achieve Premier League football in the near future. And I think, like Nathan said, there needs to be something done immediately, like now, in order for this to not happen, especially in the coronavirus era of finances. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I can, I, I can't even begin to imagine what a Wigan fan who's, you know, had to deal along with the rest of the world with like the horrors of coronavirus pandemic and then to have, you know, the championship season come back and perhaps seeing Wigan play brings just like a little bit of happiness to your life. And now to have it just like completely torn away from you, like I I can't even imagine how devastating that would be towards your whole sense of any goodness in the world. Yeah, I mean, this is just, I just can't imagine. I honestly, I feel so, so terrible for these Wigan fans. I can't imagine what they're going through. And like, I can imagine just like the soul of their club has just essentially been ripped out from. Yeah, I mean, this is terrible, Nathan. This is terrible. And it's unfortunate that it's happened in like such a predatory manner. I don't keep meaning like to harp on that word, but it's just like, it's the truth of what's been happening. And I think, you know, this really raises the question about the role of gambling in soccer as a whole, because, you know, prior to La Liga's announcement this week, I hadn't really spent that much time focusing on the different ways that gambling affects the game of soccer. But obviously there's, you know, so the sort of over influence, which comes in the form of match fixing um, or, uh, you know, betting companies sponsoring teams like Wolves or uh, the Everton sponsorship with Sport Pesa, et cetera, et cetera. But also you have things like FIFA's Ultimate Team, which is a form of gambling uh, via micro uh, transactions. I think about like, sorry to interrupt, but I think about like Wayne Rooney's number at Derby being the number 32 and the fact that that club is sponsored by a betting company called, I believe it's 32, 32. Yeah, bet 32, which is just, that's that's as blatant as you can possibly get. Yeah, and it's not, a, it's a, this isn't something that's particularly new. I mean, betting has been around, sports betting has been around since uh, the end of the amateur eras in sports in the first place. And the great Real Madrid teams of, the, of, this, of this millennium were sponsored by uh, B-Win and whatnot. And frankly, I mean, even I have bet on soccer before on, uh, on, yeah, on on legal markets before, um, because that's just it brings it, it. That's just the way of the world. But it's such a lucrative industry that we're seeing the rise in betting sponsorships that really we haven't seen before. And so La Liga's sort of statement this last week that will ban betting companies from having this sort of overt influence on La Liga teams, I think, is is groundbreaking because uh, it, it's the first. They're the, the the first, or at least the largest league to make such a concrete statement against yeah, I mean, uh, the influence of betting companies I think like that. I'm honestly okay with like betting companies sponsoring clubs, but I think it's different when you have like a casino company that owns a club. 
like i think that's where the conflict of interest is brought into like sharpest relief um yeah i also think that i mean americans have only had like really legal sports betting kind of in recent years but like sports betting is very ingrained in europe and like betting on soccer especially is very ingrained like nobody will ever forget that guy that put like a hundred dollars or something on Leicester that were like one to 5,000 to win the league. And it turned into some huge payout. So I, I think it's just like to an American audience, all of this the idea of sports betting is probably still a little bit strange. Um, but I think it's only really bad when you have like a literal betting company owning a club, because then that's when things get much dicier than whether when they're just sponsoring a team. We will keep you guys updated on the situation. Our hearts are with all of you Wigan fans out there who may be listening to this. And if you're not listening to this, you know, we just wish Wigan well. And uh, it looks like Wigan ministers of parliament have called for an investigation into the situation going on at the club right now. So we wish everyone, Wigan fans and Wigan staff, Wigan players well going forward. But Nathan Strauss. There is another big story in English soccer going down tomorrow, this Sunday. It is your club, Arsenal, going up against, once again, its mighty North London rivals in Tottenham Hotspur. The storylines are ripe coming into this one. Obviously, Spurs have just drawn nil-nil with Bournemouth, a result where they couldn't register a shot on target over 112 minutes of soccer, 12 minutes being added on to the 90 minutes of boring play we already saw from Jose Mourinho's team. And last time we spoke about Arsenal, we were speaking about maybe some of the concerns creeping up in the team, but they have been riding high ever since that loss at Brighton. Nathan, what are you anticipating for this North London derby, the first to be played behind closed doors? I mean, there are just so many excellent storylines going into this match. It's the first time Arsenal will face Jose Mourinho in a North London Derby. It'll be the first time Arsenal will play at uh, the new Spurs Stadium, at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, uh, in a North London Derby. Not to mention the fact that this is probably a season-defining game for both of these teams. Arsenal are a point ahead of Spurs right now. And, you know, looking at Spurs' remaining fixtures, they have... Uh, Newcastle, Leicester, and Palace, while Arsenal have a, a pretty similar run of games in Liverpool, Villa, and Watford. Obviously, one challenging team and then two teams that are pretty, uh, that, that aren't going to have much to play for. Villa will likely be relegated by the time Arsenal face them and whatnot. But this is also just an incredibly even game. Like 538 gives Arsenal an eight, uh, 38% chance of winning this one, and Spurs a 36% chance of winning this one. The betting lines are pretty similar as well. Uh, neither team is actually a significant favorite with Spurs being plus 165 and Arsenal being plus 155. So again, just an incredibly even, evenly matched game. But Nick, you're right in that the forms of these teams could not be more different. Arsenal having won four of their last five with that, the one exception being a draw against a good Leicester team when Arsenal had been reduced to 10 men. I personally really do think that Arsenal have a slight advantage going into this one. I think Spurs in their game against Bournemouth, a team that's likely to be relegated this year, um, that performance was just shocking. Harry Kane had more touches in his own box than in the Bournemouth box, uh, which pretty much says it all. I just think Spurs have looked really devoid of creativity, and I think their legs just might be failing them a little bit this year. And as an Arsenal fan... I, it's, it's always great to be able to get one over on Jose Mourinho, but it's even sweeter just to get one over 
on Spurs, especially when the loser of this game will likely be out of the European runnings altogether. I mean, I, I just think that Jose Mourinho loves torturing Arsenal so much. It, it's perhaps one of the things that gives him the most joy. And I think he likes being that like low-key like figure. So I, I'm I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm actually gonna throw form out the window here. I think it's I think Tottenham are actually gonna win convincingly 3-0 just because Mourinho likes embarrassing Arsenal. I don't there's that is a hot take. It's My just, goodness. It's just a gut feeling. It's just a gut feeling. I I think Tottenham kind of run away with it. And I think Arsenal are going to be so surprised to be down because they're thinking exactly what Nathan's thinking, that they're going to melt away because their team lacks spine, as we've talked about before. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a close one to call. I think Mourinho loves big games. And as Caleb said, he certainly loves embarrassing Arsenal, especially when uh, that rivalry with Arsene Wenger was in its prime in the 2000s and early 2010s. But I think... At the beginning of restart, I maybe would have agreed with you, but Tottenham have sort of deteriorated since that 1-1 draw at home to Manchester United when they looked at not free-flowing attacking best, but at least had some semblance of an attack. They have been an extremely blunt instrument in the past few games. I think not being able to register a shot on target against a side like Bournemouth who concedes so many goals and are mired in a relegation battle I think that's pretty embarrassing, to be honest, especially with a player like Harry Kane. You have players like Lucas Moura coming off the bench, who we know have goal-scoring prowess, Hunmin Song as well. I think, as we stated in our last podcast, Mourinho just is not getting the best out of his star players, and he's not cultivating a really good relationship with them enough so that they feel confident, confident enough to perform. And this is a derby in which confidence alone can get you across the finish line. It's very much about emotions. We know that there won't be fans, but these two clubs will certainly be feeling it, and I just think Spurs are in such a such a dire such dire straits as as far as going forward. Maybe they're getting a little bit better at the back. They have accumulated, I think, it's three clean sheets in a row uh, right now, and they're looking like they're adopting a little bit more of a Mourinho low block defensive shape. So that might be that might be good as far as defending the Arsenal front three. Arsenal plays in a three four three, so that might be a little bit that might be beneficial in terms of making the game narrow for the Spurs attack, but I just don't know if there is any Spurs attack for Arsenal to be concerned about. Right. And I think that uh, even though Spurs have looked better in defense, I do think that Arsenal looked for 45 minutes of the game against Leicester. Arsenal looked excellent. I don't know if either of you were, were watching it with me at the time, but they Arsenal really could have scored four goals had it not been for, Kasper Schmeichel basically standing on his head and saving. I think he ended up having six saves on the game uh, and Arsenal hit the post once as well. So I think it's going to be a really interesting battle because I do think the teams obviously know what's at stake and the tactical battles will be interesting. Um, But this is really a game that has the potential to define Spurs' season. And uh, I guess you mentioned Bournemouth and I know we we don't actually have this we haven't necessarily planned on talking about this, but it looks like uh, we are pretty much solidified in which teams are going to end up going down this year. Obviously, Norwich were the first team to be confirmed uh, to be sinking down to the championship after suffering that loss today. Uh, Villa and Bournemouth are seven and six points back of Watford and West Ham, respectively. And it would seem like the odds are stacked against them 
And uh, I was wondering, with knowing knowing the uh, the sort of COVID impacted transfer market, who are some of the players that you guys think will be making the leap from these relegated teams to maybe more established Premier League teams next season? Oh, I mean, like the list writes itself. I think so for Bournemouth, like Frazier, obviously, um, Callum Wilson, Josh King. Aston Villa, Jack Grealish. Nathan Ake for Bournemouth. Nathan Ake as well. And then for Norwich, Buendia, Cantwell. Maybe Timu Puki gets a move to whatever championship team is coming up. I, I think those types of players are all prime for a move. I think as far as Norwich goes, I think they have a, lo- a few players who are I think could, could succeed in the Prem going forward. Todd Cantwell, the young English left winger, kind of center midfielder left winger player he reminds me a lot of adam milana with a little bit more energy who can maybe go forward and get a few goals i actually wouldn't mind liverpool picking him up as a rotational option in the midfield and front three if that was possible Uh, a crazy stat about norwich that i first saw on twitter today and now i'm confirming it as well own goal is the third highest scorer on their team they only had two players score more than one goal this season, and that's Timu Puki and mm. Todd Cantwell. So certainly it seems like the ultimate yo-yo club will be yo-yoing back down once again. Wait, that's yeah, as far as other players, that, that's such that's a brutal... Brutal. I mean, look at the game today against West Ham. The goals that Mikel Antonio scored, he got four of them, but they weren't like, it wasn't like an amazing performance by Mikel Antonio. It was just the fact that the Norwich defense just has no inability to defend anything like set plays, corners, even a ball being played in over the top, they were incapable of defending. So that team, I think, rightfully deserves to go down. Wait, just how by do the, they have your lack of defensive nous? How did Antonio's goals compare to Raheem Sterling's like falling over header <laughs> against <laughs> Brighton? That was one of the weirdest goals that I've ever seen. It honestly seemed like a goal that would make me rage quit on FIFA. Like I, I really don't know how to describe it other than the ball was up in the air. Sterling was on the ground and the ball sort of just landed on his head and then trickled at a snail's pace across the goal line. And the fact that it was for honestly, I don't mean to sidetrack us, but that goal made FIFA 20 look so good. Okay. <laughs> Cause like the realism that FIFA 20 has now is just insane after that goal. Like, so EA had it right all along and we're really, we're, we, we, the players, are the ones who had it wrong. Uh, but, gents, I think we should transition, as Nathan said, we should transition our gaze across the pond to Orlando, Florida, where, ladies and gentlemen, MLS is back. Or some of it. God, some of it. Some MLS is back. Um, if you're Nashville or Dallas, you might not be as back. I don't mean to laugh at these players getting coronavirus because that's obviously a terrible, terrible thing, and I wish them well. But I think, Caleb, it's MLS might not be perhaps as ready to be back as they had anticipated. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of funny. I mean... Wait, which teams have pulled out now? It's Nashville. FC Dallas and Nashville SC. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just, I, I feel like once you can't establish the bubble appropriately, it, the whole thing is tarnished. 
right? I mean, like we spent a lot of time earlier during quarantine and stuff talking about when you have to put asterisks on things. And I think the MLS is showing that whatever happens here, we're just going to call, we'll say, yeah, somebody won something, but it's total asterisk because they couldn't even keep enough of the players safe to have the teams. I don't know. It's just kind of hilarious. Um, And it seems like a sort of emblematic uh, about sort of the state of America. And hopefully I'm hoping that like the NBA and the NHL (laughs) don't uh, have as many problems. Yeah. And I think all you have to do is look at the faces of these professional athletes as they suffer in the, you know, 90 to a hundred degree Florida humidity and heat playing for no crowds with a giant super. Okay. 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 Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I just want to talk about this Adidas loader real quick. (laughs) Because when I first saw it, I think Nathan and I watched the first, the opening match of MLS is back, which is Orlando SC versus Inter Miami. And when I when I turned on the TV and I saw the Adidas logo, I was like, wow, first of all, that looks horrible. Second of all, I can't believe they took the time to like paint the Adidas logo on the field prior to MLS's back. And then one goalie was like going for a goal kick. And I was like, where did the Adidas logo go? And that's when I realized that it was even worse. <laughs> they had superimposed crappily the Adidas logo. Like you can see sometimes they're like adjusting it to make sure it's like lining up right in the center of the field and it like moves slightly in game. It's like the most heinous ad. Oh, it's just like AR. And there's a lot of Yeah, it's AR. <laughs> yeah. And they move it in game. They move it in game, but you can like kind of see that they're adjusting it. Like, while these players are playing on the pitch, and, like, once again, not only is, like, MLS doing a disservice to his players by not keeping them fully safe, and as I said before, we don't mean to laugh at the plight of these. It's, like, it's really terrible, the fact that these players had to, two teams had to withdraw because players are unhealthy and sick, and I hope they make a full recovery and are able to rebound next MLS season in whatever iteration that looks like. But also the fact that they're, like, so focused on recouping advertising money from the money that MLS is like the, the revenue that MLS is losing for there not being crowds that they're completely distracting from the play on the pitch by having these gaudy ads. And we can talk about like the great blue screen wall of ads too <laughs> that are like just is so in your face. It's like half the screen is literally as and half the screen are these sweaty, sweaty humid men playing in what is just an embarrassingly it's like a shambolic and like epitomizes as caleb said not only the state of florida but also the state of our nation right now i just want to like the adidas yeah. logo had me feel some kind like some kind of way Dude, it, feels it, like, just, like, it feels the like the fact that it like moved mid-game how can you like be that sloppy with the product placement that's all i ask like Dude. all i ask is that you're at least like a little graceful with, with graceful with the product it's just like my head just exploded like i can't believe this adidas logo is like shifting mid-game like have some respect for like your players on the pitch like don't make it seem like it's all about money you know but nick nick think how many times you just said adidas on our podcast i mean we don't have a sponsor right now but they've succeeded in making you talk about it but you're right like the fact that it didn't work super well i mean la liga's had similar problems with ar with their like fake fans um in the stands but it just feels like 
a Black Mirror episode that didn't quite make it, right? Like it's almost dystopian. Like the Black Mirror episode, the version of it is like everybody would be like logged into their Facebook and it would give you like custom ads, right? So you'd have like Candy Crush in front of like, uh, like Nani's face and you'd have to like download Candy Crush in order to see Nani. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, but this is the thing like i can't believe that i've just been sitting here saying like adidas this whole time and i guess they like tricked me into doing their job for them but yeah this podcast oh, brought to God. you by you know and i just can't i just like it was not just actually so... to make it clear we are not reebok you're not, not bringing sponsored. anything to you from us but i don't mean to like rage about it but just the fact that like this is being done nathan in such like a, a shambolic manner from the product placement being as blatant as possible to the play on the pitch not not being like up to quality at all you know this is like these games are like really really difficult to watch and you can tell that these mls players are really really struggling to play out there in that muggy orlando heat yeah yeah and i think that it's funny i thought you were gonna say miami heat uh, there, there's so many things that went wrong. Obviously, it's not the MLS's fault that they happen to pick a bubble site that happens to be in the state with the highest rising uh, rate of infection or infections per day in the country. But if you look at how the NWSL has done, and Men and Blazers had a great bit on this uh, this past week. If you look at how the NWSL's Challenge Cup has gone in Utah, even though they had the, a team from Orlando um, pull out of the competition, theirs has actually been run incredibly well. The quality of play is incredibly high. Yes, it's being broadcast on CBS All Access, which just acquired the Champions League rights this week. Um, but I would say that the NWSL, with far more limited financial backing, has put on a much, much better return-to-play tournament uh, than the MLS has so far. From... The MLS only streaming games on Twitter via streams that will cut in and out. For example, the Revolutions game stream cut out in the last six minutes <laughs> of added time in a no. one the other day. Like, it's just like baffling. Like, this isn't this. We're not trying to watch the Belarusian <laughs> League here. Like, we're trying to watch the MLS. Like, this is an actual sporting league, and it's being put on in the same way that like a high school club tournament would be put on by like a community TV station. Like. I don't know. It's just really poor. And I think the optics are just so bad when you have teams dropping out left and right. And the fact that these teams are getting tested multiple times per day and getting their results within two days, while Florida's general public have to wait five to seven days for test results. So there's just a, what's the word, a conflagrate, conflagration of, uh, of poor circumstances and actions that have led to MLS's back making See, me I wish. don't know what okay, if you were going for there. But <laughs> whatever, Caleb. Um, if you were an MLS player, how would you feel being kind of paraded out to in these conditions to partake in a tournament that is like so shrunk and now is just like has so many holes being poked into it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you just look at the results of the games that have been played so far, I think you can tell the MLS players are not feeling it. I mean, we the first game, the two one, uh, in the Florida Derby if that's what they're calling it does is there a name for that yet the orlando miami it's something like the the like uh, i knew it it's something to do with like tussle the, the everglade event 
Um, That's probably better than whatever it's actually called. <laughs> um, but like that was the highest scoring game. It was 2-1. It was followed by drab 1-0 wins for Philadelphia over NYCFC and then the Revolution beating the Montreal Impact. And then a wonderful 0-0 draw today from the Sounders in San Jose. So I think even just in terms of like the product that is being pushed is just bad. It's like not good soccer. It's all under this haze of controversy and sort of poor execution. And like I don't know, it just doesn't seem worth it to me. Like I would just I would just end it, honestly. I mean, I've never been an MLS fan, so it's not like I feel like I'm losing that much. But I, I don't know, it just seems that it is such a bad product. Nobody seems into it. I mean, a few weeks ago we were talking about how a lot of players were like really against being forced to go. Um I, it just seems like it's not actually what MLS wants people to think about when they think of the MLS. And I yeah, think I'll that's put this their in, main issue. Right. I'll put this into perspective just a little bit. I went to Nashville SC's first game in MLS. It was a home game at Nissan Stadium in Nashville. And their attendance, they had, I think it was like 55,000 or up to 60,000 almost people attending this game. There was a lot of Atlanta United fans who attended because Atlanta United is a beast, a juggernaut in MLS, and they have a large traveling support. But there was also an incredible amount of Nashville SC fans who had come out to support their club for the first time. And also six Nashville SC supporters groups who had organized before the game and were putting on a phenomenal sort of lawn party outside of Nissan Stadium that I also attended. And just to see the enthusiasm surrounding these these fans who had waited for so long to have MLS representation from Nashville. Like it was infectious and I became, I instantly fell in love with the, with the, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's the poor choice of words for me, but it really was, it was, it was contagious. <laughs> it was, I, you know, it made me fall in love with the team and it made me become a fan of MLS and want to follow it more. Because of that connection that I had with the Nashville SC fans, I sat in the third row right behind the goal, right in the Nashville SC supporters section. I was part of the chants, part of the songs, part of the the fire surrounding a new franchise and all of the excitement that came with it. And just to see that this has been botched so poorly to the point where Nashville SC players tested positive and were showing symptoms, from what I understand, it's just incredibly sad to know that all of these Nashville SC fans were only able to support their their team that they love so dearly for two games. Yeah. And sort of, I guess we can transition away from the MLS and to a player who very well might end up in MLS someday. In the last few minutes of our show, I think it would be remiss. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the one, the only, the golf-loving madman himself, Gareth Bale. Guys, what the fuck was Gareth Bale doing today? This man does not care at all about Real Madrid. (laughs) It was the funniest thing. So, okay, I'll set the scene. Essentially, Madrid made their fifth substitution, um, and Bale was not it. So as soon as he saw that he didn't need to like care, um, not that he cares at all, he just put his mask over his eyes like a like an eye mask, and then just literally just like looked like he was asleep on the bench in Madrid's La Liga game today. 
it's so funny. It's so funny. And he must be so toxic for the locker room and so toxic for all of the like young attackers like Rodrigo or Vinicius. Just seeing this guy who just is like, oh, I'm willing to get paid my 13 million a year um, and just do nothing on the pitch. It's it's such a funny story. And he'd be great. for Honestly, it's better. It's more interesting to watch Gareth Bale just troll Real Madrid than the MLS Cup thing that we just talked about. Wales, golf, Madrid, in that order, as he Dude, this is just said. so disappointing because we know how good Gareth Bale is. This man has won Champions League finals on his own <laughs> against my beloved Liverpool. He sank the hearts of many a red that day with just an astounding bicycle kick. This dude has won finals uh, against Barcelona. I don't know if Caleb Rhodes wants me to discuss the fact that he just ended Mark Barcha's career at the club in quite ceremonious uh, fashion. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this dude is an immensely talented player and just to see the way that he's been vilified by not only the Madrid press in recent years, but also Zinedine Zidane, um, <laughs> he has said some pretty inflammatory things publicly about Bale. So I can't imagine how their relationship is behind closed doors. In fact, in 2019, Zidane said, I wouldn't say we were best mates to describe his relationship with the Welsh superstar. So I don't know. I just think it's, I can't blame him, especially after the treatment that he's received in Madrid. I think purely just because he is an Englishman or not an Englishman, he's from the United Kingdom and the pressure was always going to be a lot higher on someone from the Premier League and an export who wasn't, you know, Spanish or Italian or German uh, coming into La Liga. There's not a lot of those um, UK players who end up playing in a Spanish speaking country. Gareth Bell took the risk. And he's been rewarded somewhat for some amazing moments on the pitch. But I think the amount of disrespect has just compounded into the scene that you saw today with the fact that he did not give a flying F about Real Madrid or his uh, lack of play. You know, he didn't even look motivated at all. If you're if you're Zidane, you have to be looking at uh, jettisoning Gareth Bell from the club. I'm just surprised it hasn't happened already. Yeah, where do you think Gareth Bale goes this summer? I mean, the thing is, I would have said that he would wind up in China, but the Chinese uh, soccer, the Chinese Super League's era of massive expenditure seems to have come and gone. I mean, realistically, I think the best thing that happens is Real Madrid buy him out of his contract, and he winds up going to MLS. And then, well, I mean, but because here's, here's the thing, there's not a single club in Europe that are, that are going to pay what Real Madrid would want from him. And frankly, Gareth Bale, I think he's in a similar situation to Mesut Ozil in that he's earning, you know, over $10 million a year. He's on what, like 250 to 300,000 pounds a week. He has no need to actually like play soccer if he doesn't want to. He could easily just sit out the remainder of his contract with Madrid, play his golf and, you know, walk off into the sunset at the age of 34 when it's when his contract is up with his millions. So I, if he wants to play, I do think that he will, he would wind up uh, maybe at inter Miami or at another high profile. I don't know, man. I think it's tough just because MLS, like the brand MLS, like they're not looking for those players who are kind of knocking on the door of retirement anymore. I think we've seen the average age of designated players go down in recent years in MLS. And I think if you're an MLS club, you wouldn't want to take on the finances of someone like Gareth Bell right now. 
Well, I mean, I, we say knocking on the door of retirement because obviously, like, it doesn't, it doesn't look like he's too engaged, but he's only 30 years old. I mean, he turned 30, he turns 31 in a few days. So he's functionally, he's 31 years old. I mean, as far as bringing in well-recognized names, I actually think that he fits the target profile of a DP pretty well. Like, I think he's, he'd be a better signing for the league than Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I agree, was, but I just think you opinion. can't take the risk right now. Because look at the state that MLS is in, the fact that they're so desperately trying to recoup money for the league. Like, there, there, there aren't clubs who are going to be in the position to acquire someone like Gareth Bale. Right. But hypothetically, if you were Gareth Bale and you had the option to play in a league that is probably far below uh, your, your talent probably. and live in a place like Miami with all those five-star golf resorts, you're telling me that he would turn down the opportunity to get paid, like, I don't know, $4 million, score like 25 to 30 goals a year, and play golf at these like elite golf resorts on his days off? I don't know, man. It seems like it could be highly oh, yeah, dude. mutually 100%. beneficial. I, I think him going to... One of the teams in the Everglade event um, could be huge for him. I think he would just enjoy that so much. Um, Caleb, what have you made of him kind of getting vilified by Zidane and by the Madrid press? Because it's not the first time that we've seen this happen to a uh, a Los Blancos player. Yeah, I mean, he just... A, he's had injury problems for a lot of his time at Madrid. B, he was brought in as, to be like the Ronaldo replacement. But they kind of kept Ronaldo as the main man for, I think, a little longer than people expected. Um, and coupled with the injury problems meant that he never really got to take up the mantle. Um, so I, I think it just didn't quite work out as well as they intended. But he's been a good signing all in all. Um, he has like 105 goals and 250 appearances. He has scored some very important goals in the Champions League. So I think he's all, all, all in all had a pretty good career and I think just has had a falling out with Zidane and kind of very publicly sort of announced what his priorities are, which is his prerogative. Um, and now we're just kind of seeing the results of those two things combining. <laughs> Nathan, when you said that he and Mesut Ozil are kind of similar, I was wondering, can you guys think of any other examples of like high quality soccer players that are just complete slackers? So, uh, I, I know that there have been a few high-profile players who have come out and pretty publicly said that they don't really view their profession as anything but a job. I know Carlos Tevez, I think, was famously one of those who really viewed soccer as an occupation. Frankly, I think yeah, I, Gonzalo Higuain comes to my mind as well. Like, players who don't necessarily see... And Hazard, um, except for the fact that I think that he does really enjoy the game of soccer I, I think his discipline is uh his his athletic discipline is somewhat lacking at times but i don't know man it's kind of it's always a little disappointing sort of voyeuristically because obviously i think any sort of casual fan wishes that they had been blessed with the ability to play at that high level but on the other hand i mean fair play to them they're well entitled to live yeah i think for me it's balotelli i think this dude burst onto the scene with some immense performances with inter milan and Manchester City and the Italian national team. He has one of the most iconic moments in modern soccer history, the Why, the why Always Me t-shirt. I think that will live forever in the history of the game. But I also think that he's been mired with a lot of discipline issues, issues off the field. I remember that he missed an important meeting with Jose Mourinho to attend a Formula One uh, race. 
early on in his career and those problems plagued him throughout the entirety of it. I think there's like a variety of top 10 lists out there in soccer of the ways in which Mario Batelli has... Batali, Jesus Christ. (laughs) 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 Oh, what a sweet finish from Batali there. Assisted by Kevin Lasagna. For different reasons. Um. Yep. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think you can find like a whole host of reasons as to why Mario Batali. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> why? <laughs> you can you can tell that we're recording late here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> why Mario Balotelli's career has gone sideways? A lot of that being <laughs> his own issues off the field. And <laughs> I just remember the time that he like <laughs> took a detour and like went into a, a women's prison. <laughs> For fun, I remember that was like one of those things that he did. He like blew up his own bathroom with fireworks in Manchester. Uh, he just did so many absurd things that took the public perception away from his talent on the field, and I think that affected him in the long run. Obviously, he's been the subject of some really horrendous racist treatment upon his return to Italy with Brescia. So I do hope him the best. He did wear the Liverpool shirt at one point, so I'm always going to support him. But yeah, I think that's that's like the classic example of a footballer maybe, you know, slacking off a little bit too much and their extracurriculars getting in the way of their talent on the field. Fair enough. Yes. Well, anyways, I think that will wrap up our uh, our show for today. We will have another podcast coming up as there's some big news that's set to. Uh, be revealed on Monday with the result of Manchester City's appeal. As for now, we've enjoyed recording this podcast. I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been Nick Vinden. And have a great rest of your week. <laughs>